You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the darknet, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Research Saturday. I'm Dave Bittner, and this is our weekly conversation with researchers and analysts tracking down threats and vulnerabilities and solving some of the hard problems of protecting ourselves in a rapidly evolving cyberspace. Thanks for joining us. And now, a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks, and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals, confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Over the past year, we actually looked at different stacks of the software to basically understand, you know, what has been perhaps missed or which things have not been yet drilled into. That's Itzik Kotler. He's co-founder and CTO at SafeBreach. The research we're discussing today is titled Realtek HD Audio Driver Package, DLL Preloading and Potential Abuses. And interestingly enough, in today's software, there is sort of a trust that happens that in the network side is no longer exist. So when you have a file, the mere fact of the file name or existing in a specific directory creates a trust that it's indeed the right file with the right functionality. While when you're looking at the networking element, things such as men in the middle, we all go through our ISPs every day to get to the internet. However, we don't trust every packets or data that they're sending back just by the fact that they are in our line. So re-examining the software stack, we've basically got reintroduced 
to a problem that we are looking at, which is the DLL preloading, DLL search order hijacking. And looking at that horizontally, we have found that problem in multiple companies, and Realtek is one of those. Hmm. Well, let's dig in here and explore uh, what you're laying out here. Um, first of all, uh, this Realtek HD audio driver package, um, this goes along with some audio cards that they manufacture? Correct. It's actually a very interesting, out of the many different vendors that we've examined, this vendor actually got their driver being pushed by Microsoft Update. So essentially, um, there is certain vulnerabilities that we have found in companies that has a mixture of an OEM. In this particular uh, um, vulnerability, we have actually found it to be vulnerable everywhere you have the Realtek HD audio uh, hardware, Windows will deploy their driver that up until now had this particular vulnerability in it. Well, walk us through what is the actual vulnerability? Excellent. As in, in order to kind of set uh, the scenery to uh, everybody understands the benefit and the interjection point. So we're looking at an adversary. An adversary first needs to infiltrate into a machine, or in some cases, it could be an inside threat they may already have access. But this is not a, a vulnerability that goes to the exploitation part. So the assumption here right now is that some exploitation took place, the adversary got in into the workstation. Now, as part of the adversary next move is obviously they will want, want to uh, achieve persistence, right? They want to get a, a hold of the computer in order to pivot from it in the future. Or maybe that computer in, in the future will contain some interesting uh, information on its own. And in order to do so, you know, there's different techniques, different remote access tools, rats and backdoors. Now, we're looking into how can this mechanism of persistency and deface evasion can be implemented as smoothly as possible. Here, the DLL preloading vulnerability comes in place. Essentially, mm -hmm. instead of the adversary to go ahead and basically create a hook that will drive the software to basically load every time the computer reboots, we're basically piggybacking on the Realtek HD audio package to do it for us. And this is essentially the vulnerability that we have found in the uh, in this overall software. Hmm. Well, how does it work? How do they achieve what they're after here? So um, essentially, the HD uh, the package that comes with the driver for the hardware obviously has its own you know normal execution times, right? When you want when your computer boots up, you want the audio system to be initialized so you can use it later on within the different application. So they have their own service and drivers which take care of loading their own component. Looking at what's particularly interested here in this particular vulnerability is that Realtek, and we have discovered that again as we went through the process of disclosuring it with them, have used a very old version of the Microsoft Visual Studio. In that particular version that they, that they have used, what we end up finding out that they had also enabled localization, which makes sense. It's been an international company. There could be multiple languages and users they want to cater. That multiple languages support is actually embedded in a framework called MFC, which is something that Microsoft is actually bundling and pushing. Hmm. Particularly in that old version of MFC, they're looking for specific files 
uh, and the block contains the specific names of the file with the suffixes ANU and LOC for the different languages that they could load in runtime to cater to the user. So you can imagine every language will have a DLL that within that DLL there's different strings, there's different resource to how you should communicate with that user. So if you imagine the favorite dialogue boxes, the wizard, the next, next, next buttons that we all have to click through, the language in those dialogues needs to come from somewhere. And then when you want to support multiple languages, those will be break down into different DLLs. However, what we end up finding out due to the old version, that in those days when the, this Visual Studio compiler came out, they were treating those DLLs, although they're resource only, they treated them as a code. So essentially, if you were able to write into a specific directory a file that has this CIFIS in it, then you eventually would have managed to get your code run by Realtek as a result of their discovering the different locale options that they have. And this is exactly goes back into the persistence idea where the adversary understanding the software is installed and instead of trying to register its own service or its own routine to be invoked, uses this specific DLL, writes itself in this specific location and gets under the umbrella of Realtek to get executed on the machine. Now, they're using uh, quite an old version of Visual Studio, yes? Yes. I believe that the version that they're using is from 2005. Which is interesting in itself. I mean, obviously, I suppose they have their reasons, but uh, I guess it's uh, certainly something that would raise eyebrows. Yes, yes. And, and unfortunately, you know, this is not the first time that, you know, we in an industry, you know, observing, you know, different vendors and competitions and, sorry, companies, different vendors and companies that, you know, they have a sellable product and they keep pushing the product. And then security might not always have the first priority. And while, you know, one can argue that changing your working environment, Visual Studio, may not be a security-only reason, there is also security attached to it because legacy products contain legacy logic that, as we've witnessed here over the years, no longer exist. In, when we have tried to reproduce it in a Visual Studio 2017, that was no longer the case. So as you can mm. imagine, this is a case where if you don't use the legacy compiler, if you switch to a modern one, just by the sheer fact that you switch, you no longer have the underlying issue. I see. So this could be a situation where they were using the old compiler because in their view, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Um, everything seems to work. We've used this for a long time. Let's not spend any time or energy on that. Let's continue using it the way that we always have. And as you point out, um, that could lead to some security issues. Correct. And that was indeed the case. I, I do have to, you know, in, in favor of being honest here and looking at the problem, you know, holistically. So, yes, the usage of the outdated software and the fact that those satellite DLLs were treated as an executable was a, a major contributor to the fact that, you know, we have managed to exploit this vulnerability and managed to show how this uh, is consistent with, um, you know, with these kind of uh, post-exploitation techniques. There is also the, the matter of, you know, the fact that they have not used digital signature to validate the code. 
And again, you know, going back into our uh, initial discussion, in the network arena, trust has been by the fact of how things work, by the fact that you always kind of go through someone's pipe to some degree to get into the outside world, trust such as TLS, digital certificates, encryption has rapidly involved to accommodate, you know, all these conditions. In the sense, those tools, those encryption and cryptography capabilities are also existing in the endpoint. However, one need to choose to use those APIs, one need to choose to use this logic to validate that those are just not a file in this directory, but it's indeed a signed file by the vendor that expects those files to be signed in a specific way, thus not just randomly loading DLLs, but also verifying their origin. And I think this is the overall issue here, contributing to the fact that they have used an outdated software. Yeah, it's interesting to me. I mean, it strikes me that something uh, like an audio driver uh, could be generally considered to be benign. It's sort of out of sight, out of mind. It just operates behind the scenes here. Probably not something that attracts a lot of scrutiny. Exactly. And I think just, just because of the reason that you just mentioned, it could be almost a par- perfect hideout you know, for, for an adversary. So the researcher that has conducted this research as well as the, the previous one, Pele Gadar, is named in the blog post. In some of those elements, uh, although not in particular in this one, we've also kind of tried to look at the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is that those this service, this software, has a, a parallel driver loaded into the kernel. Now, again, we have not looked to understand the relationship and what, what kind of trust relationship could be made between those elements. But as you mentioned, the, the sound driver, but being a legitimate driver loaded into the kernel, one can even exploit this delegate relationship to even make even far-fetched and more bigger uh, impacts on, the, on that computer. Just by the sheer fact that the driver may blindly trust any calls or requests that made by the software, there is even a bigger play here to escalate even further than just having a persistent mechanism, but also roaming into the, into the kernel end and make even more subversion into the machine security at large. I see. Now, was there any evidence that anyone was taking advantage of this vulnerability? Uh, not, not that we know of. Um, you know, every now and then we do try to, again, use our sources to look around and understand, you know, whether this is something that already existed or, you know, how can we try to trace it. But to the best of our knowledge, uh, no one has used this technique. And we're very much grateful and happy that Realtek took the steps to mitigate it. So even now, if somebody reads this blog post, it's only applicable to the legacy driver. The new driver already contains the fix. And, and I think it's, it also raises a, a good point, you know, about, you know, this, this knowledge can be used to progress companies, whether it's security vendors, to be aware of such techniques by adversary, as well as the, the vendors themselves to upgrade their level of security. So all in all, I say it's a win-win. Yeah, I think it's also worth noting that uh, as part of the blog post that you all uh, put up here, that you have a timeline of the communications between your organization and Realtex. And it, it really reads like a, a back and forth sort of a collaborative process where everyone in good faith was trying to get this resolved. 
Yes, yes, it is. And this is something that, you know, we as a company and us as a researcher are very much committed into, you know, this responsible disclosure process. Uh, I'm not saying that there is not times that you need to kind of, you know, break things out and, 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 and venture on your own to get the vendor attention. Luckily, again, we did manage to get the vendor attention. It took some time to explain, you know, the vulnerability. It took some time to read their response and trying to kind of use their, um, you know, use their arguments because as we mentioned earlier, the software works. We're not talking about the situation where the user is complaining. We're talking about a situation where the user could benefit from a higher level of security and where is this security comes in place and how will it be tangible? It's not always very clear to all the vendors. And so going back and forth, trying to explain the scenario, trying to explain the different technicalities, we're very happy that Realtek understood that and basically proceeding to fixing it. And again, as you can see, the result is documented in the timeline, but nonetheless, there is a CVE issued, and more importantly, there is a patch that has been uh, circulated. So we put an end to the problem. What are the broader high-level lessons to be learned here in terms of uh, people who are working, developing things like this within their organizations, sending them out into the real world? What sorts of things uh, should they uh, be aware of that, uh, that this issue demonstrates? I think it's it's a very good question. I think this issue demonstrates again a little bit of the the old ways where assumptions about you know artifacts, whether it's paths, file names, uh, you know, or or even to some degree some special signatures or or keywords were used to identify, locate, and and um, trusted in order to perform actions. And again, we can all look back and understand that. You know, back in the day, from a computational perspective or even from a, a threat landscape perspective, those things could may have um, a picture or come across as an overkill. But I think these days, you know, especially when you're looking at uh, a very popular company that has a huge distribution mechanism, that has a, a huge footprint that could exist in many different laptops and computers. And the side effect that, you know, this little nuance can now give an adversary a legitimate mechanism to load the malicious code and potentially abuse their driver to perform kernel subversions to other processes is very, very far. And so, you know, again, going back into the basics, going back into the uh, security hygiene, we're looking here at how should you treat artifacts when you try to load them. If you know that it's your own software, you should definitely sign. You should be able to authenticate and validate your own code signatures. If you're looking to work with third parties that develop for you, there are schemes and rotation mechanisms when you can share digital certifications and encryptions. So there are ways to solve this issue, much like it was solved in the network world, but what it takes is people to care, people to think about that as a problem and hopefully, again, going back into Peleg's extensive research in 2019 that resulted in, if I'm not mistaken, a little bit over 20 different CVEs from many different big vendors in the market. I really hope this will move the needle going forward. That's Itzig Kotler from SafeBreach. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. 
Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contain threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. The CyberWire Research Saturday is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.